When Wayne called me last week, actually, um, called me up, said, hey, buddy, I've got a question for you. <laughs> what, are you what are you doing next weekend? Uh, no, he, he asked me to fill in, and um, I knew we were wrapping up the Wonderful Words series, and I didn't, off the top of my head, know what the word was. So I had to look it up. I looked on our schedule and saw the word resurrection. I went, yes! And then I went, oh, wow. So that, that elation turned to feeling a little overwhelmed. Resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity, as we'll see in a few minutes, which is what we're going to talk about. But I think what I'm actually going to present to you today is the beginning of what could eventually be a four, six, or even eight-part Bible study. It's really inspired me because there's so much material on the resurrection and resurrection in general. So I'm really looking forward to developing this further. However, today, I'm excited to present this to you. In no small part, because one of the funny things about resurrection that you'll find in pop culture, you know, zombies. I love zombie movies. Some of you may be fans of The Walking Dead. Some of you are sitting there looking at that going, I have no idea what that is. And uh, anyway, it's a very popular television show based on a comic book series. Um, and there's a scene in this show. I'm going to set it up for you. One of the main characters, whose name is Herschel, says something very poignant. Um, he's sort of like the grounded faith. He's the Christian among the group who still maintains a faith in the Lord and, and how he's working, even in this zombie apocalypse, right? So listen closely to what he says. There, it's, it's funny but poignant at the same time. Christ promised a resurrection of the dead. I just thought he had something a little different in mind. <laughs> yes as everybody else did. Of course, Herschel's comment is, is somewhat humorous, but also poignant, because throughout the ages, there have been differing views on resurrection. However, we're specifically interested this morning in first century Judaism, because this is where the context of the resurrection of Jesus occurs, and he is the first fruits of resurrection for all of us. Now, the Jews had specific ideas from the prophets about what resurrection would look like. For example, Ezekiel 37, where Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones, they're dead bones, they reanimate with flesh and blood, and God tells him this. He says, you will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. And Isaiah prophesied, Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. Now, with these and other passages, the Jews had an established belief in the resurrection of the dead. And it was clearly physical, not exactly like a zombie apocalypse. But it is a bodily resurrection nonetheless. In Christian origins and the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus as a historical problem, how about that for a title? N.T. Wright clarifies this point. He says, if a first century Jew said that someone had been raised from the dead, the one thing they did not mean was that such a person had gone to a state of disembodied bliss, there either to rest forever or to wait until the great day of re-embodiment. Resurrection meant embodiment. Further, it implied that the new age had dawned. 
Nobody suggested that the new age had dawned, except, of course, the Christians. The early Christians were so clear in their conviction that we have no choice but to fully embrace resurrection is real. Now, any of you who've known me for any length of time know I love acronyms, alliterations, mnemonics. I try to use them as much as possible, so we are going to use one today. Real, R-E-A-L. The fact of the resurrection is reliable. Christ was crucified, was indeed dead. And three days later, he rose from the tomb, bodily resurrected. He was not a ghost. He did not almost die. He died and arose. The doctrine of the resurrection is essential. As I mentioned earlier, the core of Christianity is resurrection. The resurrection first of Christ Jesus and then of the believer to eternal life. And the result of the resurrection is accessible. Those who place their trust in Christ alone are justified before the Lord. With the resurrection, God's plan of redemption is shown to be fulfilled, and we have been sent the Holy Spirit. And the power of the resurrection, because of that, is life-changing. Although eternal life begins at the moment of salvation, we remain here for a reason, to demonstrate the power of the resurrection through our lives. So, let's begin. The fact of the resurrection is reliable. There are many apologetic resources attesting to the overwhelming evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Most authoritative for the believer, though, should be the Word of God. So let's turn to what is often referred to as the resurrection chapter, and this is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this. He says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Now, it's important to pay attention to Paul's testimony here. The list of all the people to whom Jesus appeared bears great weight. There would have been many people contemporary to this event. And not only was it not debunked, Christianity, based upon the fact of the resurrection, spread like wildfire, in large part due to the testimonies of those who had interacted with the risen Jesus. Not the least of which was James, his brother, mentioned in this passage, who did not believe in Jesus' deity during his earthly ministry. He was a skeptic. Now, let's examine a few common theories that have been put forth throughout the years and how they have been proven untenable. Joseph of Arimathea had the body moved. The body was moved by Roman and or Jewish authorities. Jesus didn't really die. He recovered and left the tomb, sometimes called the swoon theory. Or the women were at the wrong tomb. All right, Joseph of Arimathea had the body moved. There are three solid reasons this cannot be true. First, it is extremely unlikely that Joseph would want to do this. He took great risk to his social and political standing by honoring Jesus in this way. Why would he then want to move him? Second, if Joseph had legitimately removed the body, why do it in the middle of the night? He wouldn't have. And the act itself would have drawn enough attention to provide evidence for the detractors that Jesus had not risen. Third, there's no record whatsoever of a tomb or a shrine becoming the center of veneration or worship on the ground that it contained the body of Jesus. If it was ever seriously stated at the time that Jesus was buried somewhere else, 
it most certainly would have become a site of some significance. And next we look at this. The body being moved by Roman and or Jewish authorities. Oh, this one is pretty simple to disprove. If the authorities had moved Jesus, there would have been so much evidence, so much activity around the occurrence that there never would have been so great a following of this newfound faith. They simply would have presented the body and put the movement to rest. Okay, Jesus didn't really die. He recovered and left the tomb. This is ridiculous. Even the liberal 19th century theologian David Strauss wrote the most scathing critique of this theory when he said this. He said, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulcher, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, could have given to the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave. Such a resuscitation could only have weakened the impression which he had made upon them in life and in death, but could by no possibility have changed their sorrow into enthusiasm, have elevated their reverence into worship. The Romans were quite adept at execution. The idea that Jesus somehow survived the crucifixion, which is an undisputed fact of history, just cannot be imagined in any reasonable context. Okay, lastly, the women were at the wrong tomb. And then, of course, it would have to follow subsequently that all the encounters with Jesus after that were the result of a mass psychological delusion based on the testimony of these. I really want to stop just there, but let's keep going. So in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene has the encounter with the angels and the risen Jesus. And in verse 15, it says she's thinking he was a gardener. Well, what she's, who she's thinking was a gardener is Jesus, okay? So if it wasn't Jesus, if it was a gardener, and indeed they were at the wrong tomb, again, the authorities weren't as smart as these theorists think they should have been. All they had to do was produce the gardener, confirm the location of the tomb, and squash the commotion over the risen Jesus. But no such plan happened. No one has produced a shred of evidence to contradict all the eyewitnesses and subsequent followers of Jesus. Now, there are more, but th there's nothing really rational about any of these theories. So Albert Henry Ross is a name you might not know, but he's also known as Frank Morrison. That was his pen name. He was an agnostic at best. He was an admirer of the historic Jesus, but not a believer in the resurrection, let alone the deity of Christ. As a journalist, he made it a passion project in the early 20th century to prove the resurrection did not happen. Of course, you probably know the rest of the story. Some of you may have even read his book. He did such thorough research that many who read the book, not really knowing that much about him, that thought he was a lawyer because his arguments were so powerful in proving the authenticity of the resurrection. He completely changed his position during the time that he was doing his research, and he became a believer. Now, most of you have probably heard of Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Christ and many other apologetic works, and they recently made a movie about his life. He said this. He said, I owe Morrison a great debt of gratitude. Who moved the stone was an important early link in a long chain of evidence that God used to bring me into his kingdom. Morrison's stirring intellectual exploration of the historical record proved to be an excellent starting point for my spiritual investigation. Morrison came to a place where he had no choice but to accept as fact that indeed Jesus had risen. He writes, whoever comes to this problem, that's the problem of the resurrection, of course, has sooner or later to confront a fact 
that cannot be explained away or removed by any logical processes, whatever. This fact is a profound conviction came to the little group of people, a change that attests to the fact that Jesus had risen from the grave. The whole party, including the nine men who fled at the arrest and certain independent persons who have not previously come into the story, were convinced that something had occurred that had changed their entire outlook. The phenomenon that here confronts us is one of the biggest dislodgements of events in the world's history, and it can be accounted for only by an initial impact of colossal drive and power. Yet, the original material from which we have to derive this dynamic force consists of a habitual doubter like Thomas, a rather weak fisherman like Peter, a gentle dreamer like John, a practical tax gatherer like Matthew, a few seafaring men like Andrew and Nathaniel, the inevitable women, and at most, two or three others. And he goes on, seriously? Does this rather heterogeneous body of simple folk, that word heterogeneous, by the way, I'm not going to make you say it, um, that means very diverse. Not just diverse, but this is like the mishmash of all these different things coming together for one purpose. So this body of simple folk reeling under the shock of the crucifixion, the utter degradation and death of their leader look like the driving force we require? Frankly, it does not. And the more we think of it disintegrating under the crisis, the less can we imagine it, rewelding into that molten focus that achieved those results. Yet, the clear evidence of history is that it did. Something came into the lives of these very simple and ordinary people that transformed them. Of course, it was the resurrection of Jesus that had transformed them. When he says disintegrating under the crisis, he's talking about the crucifixion. And following the unambiguous message of the resurrection spread. So in Acts 4, we see Peter and John at work while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Now, I like how N.T. Wright clarifies why there was confusion and annoyance over the teaching of the resurrection as far as the Jews were concerned. He writes, from the very beginning, Christian reuse of resurrection language is astonishingly free of vague and generalized speculation. It is crisp and clear. Resurrection means going through death and out the other side into a new mode of existence. This whole position is comprehensible only within the thought world of Judaism, but it is much more precise than anything that non-Christian Judaism had at that stage produced. If, therefore, at any time in this period you had said to a Jew, the resurrection has occurred, you would have received the puzzled or irritated response that it obviously had not, since the patriarchs, prophets, and martyrs were not walking around alive again. And since the restoration spoken of in Ezekiel 37 that we read earlier clearly had not occurred either, not to mention the great prophecies of Isaiah and the rest. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus was never in question to those original Christians. They had seen the risen Jesus and began to develop the core of our doctrine based upon the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no foundation for the divine nature of Christ and the eternal result of his substitutionary death, having been accepted and confirmed by the resurrection. 
Now, Jesus being the first fruits, we follow in forgiveness and eternal life. The doctrine of resurrection is essential. With confidence in Jesus' resurrection, there's confidence in our future resurrections. C.S. Lewis stated succinctly, saying to preach Christianity meant primarily to preach the resurrection. And I like to go to N.T. Wright again, where N.T. Wright says Christianity began as a resurrection movement. It was the central driving force informing the whole movement. In particular, we can see woven into the earliest Christian theology we possess, that of Paul, of course, the belief that the resurrection had in principle occurred and that the followers of Jesus had to reorder their lives, their narratives, their symbols, and their praxis accordingly. So let's keep going in the resurrection chapter where Paul continues. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That was somewhat a thread of belief at the time. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. And so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only... We should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Without believing the resurrection is real, there is no justification. And without justification, there's no eternal life. There's no resurrection for us. Paul writes to the church in Rome because he, he's speaking of Abraham here, because he was fully convinced that, God, that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And to the church at Ephesus, once again, Paul emphasizes the centrality of the resurrection around the entire person of Jesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. By now, we should clearly see the point. If Christ has not been raised, as Paul said, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. In his powerful speech on the day of Pentecost, Peter appealed to his fellow Jews by going to the scriptures they knew, specifically about resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. 
Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me in Hades or allow your Holy One to see decay. You have revealed the paths of life to me. You will fill me with gladness in your presence. Brothers and sisters, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. There's that word again. They were witnesses to the resurrection. This was a big deal for a lot of people, but he goes on. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out on you what you both see and hear. Therefore, he has poured out what? The Holy Spirit. The result of the resurrection is accessible. It's accessible. C.S. Lewis said, the New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. Jesus said himself, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. We benefit from the result of the resurrection, again, of which Jesus is the first fruits. He rose, we will rise. Paul to the church in Rome sending much the same message. He says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Now, looking back to 1 Corinthians 15, in verses 47 through 57, Paul lays out the promise of accessibility for us who believe in the risen Lord, this access to our own incorruptible risen bodies. He says, The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Paul's exclamation point at the end of the chapter. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, 
immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The power of the resurrection is life-changing. In an essay written for the C.S. Lewis Institute titled The Resurrection of Jesus Christ as Christianity's Centerpiece, another title of interest, Benjamin Shaw and Gary Habermas write this, the resurrection is more than just a historical event that one accepts on rational or historical grounds. It does not stop there. The practical outworkings of this foundational tenet are numerous and cover virtually every aspect of theology as well as the everyday features in the life of the believer. Therefore, as Paul writes, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if we consider ourselves dead to sin, then our lives should reflect the change. The power of the resurrection does change lives. We have been given a living hope that should define who we are and how we act, especially in this day and age. Peter writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I think that term living hope is so powerful because our lives should reflect that. It's an active hope. And Peter goes on, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly because you have been born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. So, the resurrection is real. The reliable facts that Jesus was crucified but was raised from the dead established essential doctrine that our justification is made sure because of Christ's victory over death. This is just not information. There are accessible results those who trust in Christ alone will have eternal life. The power of this fact, the doctrine, and the results of believing in this are life-changing. We live in the hope of eternal life and by the power of the Holy Spirit made possible because of the resurrection. The resurrection is real. Now, in a few minutes here, we're going to take communion together. Uh, just want to make it clear that uh, there's nothing saving about doing communion. We do this in remembrance of Christ and Him crucified 
and then raised for our justification. And I do want to say, if, if you're sitting here today and you've really wrestled with this topic, whether the resurrection is real, what does that mean for you? We would love to talk to you more about this. I would love to talk to you. We, you walk around the building, you'll see people with name tags. At the end of the service, we are going to have some people up here that will pray with you. But to close our, our message this morning, let me pray, and then uh, don't go anywhere because we're going to do communion. But right now, let's just go before the Lord. Lord, we worship you this morning. We praise you for the power of the resurrection. Lord, we, we are so grateful that you've called us to be a part of your kingdom. May we always be mindful that it is your kingdom, not our own. And Lord, may we prepare our hearts and our minds and orient ourselves towards the truth of the resurrection, the truth of our justification as we prepare to take the elements this morning. Lord, I just pray that as we go from here, our lives truly would reflect the living hope that we have through the resurrection of your Son. Lord, may our lives truly reflect it in word and deed and give you all of the honor and all of the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.